This is the message given by the Reverend Dr. Craig Troxell during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for January 7th, 2024. The title of the message is Praying to the Father. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we'll be looking at verse 9, and I'm sure many of you are acquainted with this passage where our Lord is is answering the disciples' inquiry about how to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we turn to these familiar words But we do so, Father, with a renewed concern that we would gain all that you have for us. That perhaps there are benefits, uh, there are blessings that we have not availed ourselves of because of this very thing our Savior is trying to, to tell us and to teach us with regard to our Father in heaven. And so we simply ask that the gates of heaven would be open to us, that you would spill out upon us your spirit and grace and those very blessings that we have closed ourselves off to, that we have ignored, neglected, we have not seen, that we have not sought, but so desperately need. So draw us closer to yourself, we pray, our great Father in heaven, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I decided to look back on the list of books I've, I've read the last 15, 20 years with a particular question in view. And the question was, how did these books treat the father in the story? Who was he? What was he, what was he like? And it was interesting uh, to me. You would have certain books and stories where uh, the father was, was very violent Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Uh, You might have some where uh, the father is moody. That's what Percy Jackson discovered, that he was a son of a Greek god, who were very moody, um, and the lightning thief. Uh, Some, though, very virtuous, as um, uh, a movie that's very popular right now, Dune. It's a book I read many, many years ago. It's the first of many, many novels that are very long, and... um, Paul Atreides, his father, is, is a man of tremendous noble character, integrity. His hands are clean as a ruler and as, as a father. Uh, Bella's father in the Twilight series. Um, you're probably surprised I even know this. I'm very disappointed that I know this. Um, <laughs> but her father is very understanding and really tries hard as a father. Then you have no, uh, fathers who are very noble uh, in Les Miserables, Jean Valjean. Uh, with regard to his adopted daughter. This is a man of tremendous character and sacrifice. Harry Potter's father uh, gave his life uh, for his son. Where I was most surprised, I was not surprised to find those things. What I was surprised is to find so many stories and, and books and even movies where there's a father, but we don't hear anything about him. He is not significant. He is not relevant. He doesn't even matter. 
And I'm wondering if this is true for many Christians. That as we think about our faith, as we think about it in its very practical terms, in the daily walk, in, in prayer, how much does the Father matter to us? Who is he? What is he, what is he like? And yet when Christ's disciples come to him and ask him about prayer, this is where he begins. Your Father, our Father in heaven. It's foundational. So as we look at these, these brief words this morning, uh, believe it or not, I've managed to come up with three points, not to disappoint you as a Presbyterian preacher, and they are these. Very succinct, Father, that's the first point. Our Father and our Heavenly Father. If you didn't catch it, let me repeat it. <laughs> Father, our Father, and our, our Heavenly Father. Well, we have to begin with this question, how is it that we can even call God our Father? And this is what the Son came to do. He came to reveal the Father. There's many things that Christ says about himself, that I have come for this, this purpose. And this is one of the things that he says, I've come to reveal to you the Father. This is why he came. And the passage that was read a little while ago in John 1, uh, part of the prologue to the Gospel of John, sets up something that will appear later in the book, as it was read also this morning. But we hear these words, no one has ever seen God. No one. And that's in the context where Christ is being compared to Moses, the great prophet who saw the outskirts of God's back, as it were. But the author says, no one has ever seen God. Then he says this, but God, the only begotten, who has been at the Father's side from all eternity, he has made him known. And think of how that falls on the heels of the contrast that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is that Christ has come, and in Christ we see what Moses did not see. And through Christ we receive what Moses could not give. No one has ever appeared like this or like him. Nobody has ever been sent like him, like Christ. And no one has ever seen God in his unveiled glorious presence, not even Moses, but the Son of God has. Only the only begotten Son of God, who is at the Father's side, now in his triumphant glory, who's been at the Father's side from all eternity, he is the one who has made him known. And that word, made known, which is a word that can be re, uh, translated revealed, it's a word that's it's compact, and it means uh, that he's the one who come, can come and explain. This is the one person who can interpret for us and give us a full and accurate account. It's like if you were at a museum in Normandy, France, there that talks about how the Allied forces landed there, and the museum uh, tour guide is telling you all about it, but in walks a veteran, uh, a captain from Easy Company, and the museum director says, this is the person, just the right person to tell us all about it because he was there, he's an eyewitness, and he experienced it. That's what is being said here about the son. He's able to reveal the father to us because he's been with him from the very beginning. So the son has come to reveal the father, to explain him, to describe him, to, to show us who the father is. And that's what the Son has done. He's revealed the Father specifically 
one who loves. Now, there's many things that Christ says about the Father, but this is the chief part. This is the most important thing for us, that he's revealed the Father who loves us. And in fact, as John Owen says, that the whole scheme of salvation flows from this one point, the love of the Father. And the scripture says this repeatedly, like 1 John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's John 3.16, that he sent, that's love, that he sent his son into the world, that the gospel begins right here, the father's love that is the fountain of the gospel that is prior to the sending of the son. In fact, we could say the measure of love is this. It's the father's willingness to send his son into this world. Romans 8.32, Paul says, how do we know that God is not against us, but that he is for us? He says, it's simple, it's seen in this. The father did not spare his son, but gave him for us. In Genesis 22, we have a picture of this where God puts Abraham to a test Tells him to go to this mountain and sacrifice his son. He lifts the knife, but the angel of God stops him. And what does God say to Abraham? He says, Abraham, you have not withheld your one and only son, the son that you love. Now I know. Now I know that you fear me. What is God showing us in the gospel? That he has not withheld, withheld his one and only son, the son that he loves. And we can say to God, now we know that you love us. The son who comes to reconcile us to God. That reconciliation assumes a conflict. There's a need for a relationship to be restored. This is exactly what Christ came to do. He, he came to bring peace and reconciliation between God and us. And he did so by dying our death and paying the penalty of, of our sin, standing in our place, exhausting the wrath of God so that all that would believe upon him as their substitute would receive the forgiveness of sins and have peace with God. And what this tells us is that God is no longer, first and foremost, our judge. He is our father. He is no longer, first and foremost, the one with whom we have to reckon with regard to our sin. He is the one who reckons our sin is forgiven because he sees us as righteous in his sight. He is now for us, first and foremost, the father of mercies. And so through Christ, we have this access to God as our father. But we can ask ourselves, well, who is this one to whom we pray and how should we pray? And here's where the shorter catechism is so helpful in question 100. And it says, so how do we pray to God in light of this petition, what Christ is telling us about how we pray? And it says, well, there's two things we have to keep in mind that we can come to God and we pray to God and approach him with reverence because he is God, but we can also approach him with confidence because he's our father. Because he's our God, we know that he is able to help us. He can do all things. But because he's our father, he is ready and willing to help us. It's keeping both these things in mind that we come to God, we pray to him as God, but also as our father. And there are some that need to hear one of these over the others. There are some people that pray probably too irreverently. They come too informally and casually, flippantly. I spoke at a youth camp for, for 12 years of high schoolers, and it was amazing the prayers that I heard. They were very moving. Sometimes they were frightening, sometimes quite heretical. They were well-intended, 
But you hear these flippant prayers, Daddy, it's me. It's like, okay, that's not exactly the way we pray to God, but, but he knows what you mean. And so some pray too irreverently. They forget they're praying to God. But today we want to think upon this, that there are some that pray to God and they're so utterly frightened, frozen, and immobilized in fear. And that's not really the fear of God. It's, it's dread. Because they've forgotten God is their father. And when they come in prayer, they approach in unbelief, thinking he's going to punish me. He doesn't love me like he loves other people, which is exactly what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to think that your father in heaven is angry with you, that he is disappointed, that he is implacable. He's just waiting to crush you under his thumb. That's how some people approach God. And so they draw back in fear and with suspicion and grieve their father in heaven. Here's the irony of this, is that we plead. We plead and beg our non-Christian friends. As we share the gospel with him, we say, stop running from God. We say, go to him. Go to him, and and I promise you, you will find one who will love you and forgive you and, and accept you, and you'll finally have peace. But we don't even listen to our own advice. We sin against him. Instead of running to him, we run away from him because we don't believe in his love. We fix upon his terrible majesty and the severity of his justice and we are in dread when we should be fixing upon his love that he has promised to give his children to all those who look to his son for life. The father loves you. And he doesn't need to be persuaded to be be good to you. This is what Christ said to to his disciples. He says, even you know how to give good gifts to your children. If your child comes to you and asks for a portion of of food, you don't give them a, a stone and say, go gnaw on this for a little while or give them a snake. He says, how much more will your father in heaven give you Good gifts. And this is what Christ was saying in the passage that was read in John 16, 26. He said, just ask anything of me and I'll ask the Father and I'll give it to you. Except for this. I'm not going to ask you the the Father for this. I don't need to ask the Father for this. And what he's talking about. I don't need to ask the Father to love you. He loves you already. And he loves you because you accept me. And you love me. And my father loves everyone who loves his son. You see, the apostles knew Christ. They had spent years with him. They were confident, not just in his provision, but in his patience and his his tenderness. But they didn't really have that same perspective on the father. You even get Philip saying in John 14, Christ, show us the father. And the text seems to suggest to us that The son's a little bit, Christ is a little bit exasperated with his disciple. He says, you've been with me all this time. He says, to see me is to see the father. I don't need to beg the father. I don't need to to change his mind. We agree. The father and the son, we are one. We're one in will. 
We want the same things. We love the same things. We agree on the same things. We promise the same things. We do the same things. That's what Christ meant. He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father's loving heart, the very thing that some people are frightened of. They, they know that Christ loves them, but they wonder about the Father. But the, the Son of God assures his disciples again and again to go to their Father. In Matthew 6, he says, don't be anxious about, about all these things. He doesn't say, because I'm looking out for you. That's not what he says. He says, your Father knows that you need these things. When he goes on and speaks about prayer in this chapter of Matthew 6, he says, go to that secret place and pray. Does he say anything about the Holy Spirit? Does he say anything about himself? He says, no. He says, your father is already there. He's waiting for you to hear from you. It's the father who is the fountain and the cause of the gospel. It's the Father who has predestined us in love. It's the Father who freely and graciously adopts us into his family. It's the Father who willingly sent his Son into this world. It's the Father who loves us. And Christ is trying to tell his disciples then, and he's trying to tell us now, do not be troubled. The same fellowship that you have with me, you can have with the Father. You have access to this Father, and you have access through Jesus Christ. God is your Father because the Son is your Savior. That's the access we have. But notice he doesn't say the Father. He says our Father. As you look at the Lord's Prayer, there are certain things that in the general scheme are supposed to strike you. Six petitions, six things we're to ask of God. The first three have nothing to do with you and me, as it were. Their first and foremost have to do with God, the greatness and the hallowedness of his name and his kingdom and his will. And then the prayer turns to our needs, very specific needs. The second thing you should notice is you see no pronouns in the singular. You don't see me and mine and I. What you have is our and us. And that's meant to give us perspective about this prayer. Our Father points to the fact that we are part of a family, the family of God, the household of faith. There are only two ways you can become a member of a family. You have to be born into that family or adopted into that family. Well, the Christians, we get both. We are born into this family, born again by the Spirit. John 3, 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's exactly how we've entered the kingdom of God. Through that rebirth, given a new heart by the Holy Spirit working in us in sovereign grace. But we've also been adopted. This act of God's free grace where he... uh, brings about this change in status, takes us from one family to another, from one kingdom to another. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's how we've entered into this family, our family. When you heard this, the pastoral prayer being prayed this morning, I was struck that this is a family prayer. Praying for your families. Fathers and mothers and children, newborn children, praying for families that just had to say goodbye to a dear saint, 
a church family that, that mourns for each other, carries each other's burdens, rejoices with those who rejoice. It's a family prayer. That's how we are to pray. And scripture reminds us again and again that we're in this family with all these one another commands that you and I are commanded to, to love each other and to serve each other, to forbear with one another, to encourage and to admonish one another, to show hospitality to one another, to have fellowship, to to pray, to live at peace with, to confess our sins to, to do all these things because we're a family. And sometimes we're the only family some people have. The first church in Philadelphia, we had a young lady there. She was a student at the Westminster Seminary of Philadelphia. She was from Mexico. I said, where are you from in Mexico? She said, Tabasco. I said, you're kidding me. I said, where'd you go to college? She said, Tabasco. I said, you're telling me you have a, a diploma that says University of Tabasco? She said, yes. I said, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it beats Anderson University by a mile. <laughs> she came to Christ. She was physically removed from her, from her home. She had no family, except the church, until God used her to convert her brother and her father. Then she was welcomed back into the family. But you and I all have friends, the experiences, they came to Christ. They were shunned, removed. They only had one family, it was us. Even a Christian who is confined and chained in a cell, like Paul, can still pray for their family as their family prays for them. As you and I need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. 24,000 of our brothers and sisters were killed last year in Nigeria. Nobody talks about it. It's not in the press. But it'd be a sadness if their family forgot them and was not praying for them. Or North Korea or Yemen, or the Sudan, or Northeast India. We go on and on, Afghanistan, Pakistan, rural areas in Indonesia, China. Our brothers and sisters need us to remember we are praying to our Father. This is our family. We pray for our family. We pray in this fellowship with other Christians. God is, is our Father, because the Son is, is our Savior. But he says we pray to our Father in heaven. And you see, the Lord's prayer is to give us ultimate perspective. Our access is not just to the Father, but to heaven. If your Father is in heaven, if your Savior is in heaven that it means your life is in heaven. That's exactly how Paul begins Colossians 3. He says, set your minds on the things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is, and your life is hidden in him. That's where your life is. It's seated at the right hand of God. It's in the throne room of their father. It's, it's like your journey's end. Heaven is your journey's end, but this is where your life's meaning and purpose is found now, the very epicenter of your life, the very center, your very heart is in heaven. Heaven's not just a destination of your person one day, it's the destination of your prayers today. And what Christ is doing to us, he's he's turning our heads to, to see ourselves as our Father in heaven sees us today. 
that our Father in heaven is waiting. He's welcoming us. He's ready, willing to help. And this is so important, especially for our young people. Because what do we find in the world, as a world that is supposedly so tolerant, is not tolerant. That when all the world is hard and it's cold, when no one else cares, no one else will listen, <clears throat> no one else has time, when no one loves you, here's the one who does. Your Father in heaven. Always tender, always compassionate, always ready. And he says to you, I love you. I accept you as you are. I will listen to you. I will stay. And he warmly invites you into his presence to come. And he says, ask me anything you want. Tell me everything that is concerning you. Pour out all of your heart, all of your hurts. I have the time. And what Christ is showing us, look to the Father as he is. This is love. A Father who loves. And he wants you to love him back. His heart is, is wide open to you. And yet so many of us are content to live at a distance. And he welcomes you into his presence. To trust him, to trust in his love and to love him in return and not to hold back. And so we need to cling to this precious truth here that your father loves you and he wants you to love him. And he's asking you to let the light of his grace and his, his truth into your heart and melt those doubts that you have about him and about his acceptance and his love for you. You'd become awestruck again and again with just how wide and long and high and deep this love is. It's, it's bigger than life. It's better than life, Scripture says. And to drink deeply of this foretaste of what awaits us all in heaven, this free, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love, and to know that all of the Father's thoughts about you and towards you are thoughts of kindness, causes everything in your life to work for your good. That is his single goal for you, what's good for you. So you should seek him with all your heart. What will you find? You'll find him waiting, listening, to embrace his love and let it fill your heart. Heaven is open to you now. Your father is there. Seek him. God is our father because heaven is our home. And that's what our Lord says in John 14 too. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Our Savior has given to us this promise that he will return and gather his bride and take us not just to, to heaven, but to the Father. Because you see, this is about family. This is a family prayer. Family is about where you feel you belong. So when you come home from school or from a long trip, you've been away, you come home to that, that comfort of that familiar food, 
this place filled with all these warm memories. This is where you belong. And what Christ is saying, you belong in your father's house. This is your home. We're God's children. We're meant to dwell in that home. And there's a room for you. In fact, he says it's prepared for you. What does that word prepared mean? It points to plans are being made. This is very intentional. This is very thoughtful. That God has made his mind clear to us. This is true in all of his providence. Every detail in your life is being shepherded and cared for. You are being shielded and protected, undergirded and loved. All of it is taken care of. And this is just the same. Everything is made ready. This is profoundly personal. My wife and I went back to Philadelphia to, for a family retreat, and there was a family we were to stay with. And we, we walked into the kitchen and laid out in the kitchen in this wonderful island were Philadelphia cheesesteaks. And that's when I knew they loved us. <laughs> it was more than that. Each of our children, a bedroom where they could sleep, and personal touches just for them. It was thought out. It was planned. This is the eternal son of God. This is all wisdom. And he says, I'm preparing a place for you. He says, I know what you like. I know what you need. That's where I'm going. That's why I'm leaving. That's what I'm doing. Because your place is with me. Your place is with your father. You need to be home. And you see, it puts everything into perspective. Not just how to see the future, but how to see your life right now. How to see yourself as his child right now. But this place is being prepared for you. It's, it's kept for you. It's safe. It's home. It's beyond the reach of danger. It's in the Father's hands. Christ says he will come again for us. And I just simply ask you, if Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for you, if he suffered for you, if he died for you, if he rose from the dead for you, if he rules all things for you, then when Christ says, I'm coming again and I will take you to be with me at home, what does this mean? I mean, this is the one who has proven beyond all doubt that he will do whatever it takes whatever it takes to save you and to strengthen you and to protect you, then he'll do what it takes to bring you home. This is the one who says to you, if I have to suffer on the cross, if I have to rise from the dead, if I have to conquer every enemy, if I have to put all rule, authority, and power and dominion under my feet, if I have to shake the heavens and the earth, when I say I'm coming to get you, then do not be troubled. Be assured, there is a place for you, and it's with me and my Father in heaven. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
If you believe the Son is your Savior, then God is your Father. And heaven is your home. It's our home. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. It's living and active. It moves in the hearts of your people. It brings us back to the center of the gospel. It brings us back to ourselves, to right thinking, how to see this life and this world as we should, and ourselves in it. So, Father, we thank you for the encouragement it brings. We thank you how it rebukes our unbelief and our doubt, how it melts all these things that would stand between us and our Father in heaven. And we thank you that through Jesus Christ, that every obstacle has been removed and the way has been made open. We rejoice in this again this day. We pray this in Jesus' name with thanksgiving and love in our hearts. Amen.